Hi, and welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Asher. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Today, we'll be delving into Elvis Presley's Jewish World with Rosella Shartok, who recently published the first book to thoroughly contextualize Elvis's Jewish connections and the impact Judaism had on the king of rock and roll. But first, one brief reminder, check out our video interview series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with historians, diplomats, Middle East experts, even an astronaut and an NFL player and a legendary DJ. Watch our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Well, few people know about Elvis Presley's range of deep personal relationships with the Memphis Jewish community, including members of his inner circle known as the Memphis Mafia. My guest today is Roselle Chartok, author of the new book, The Jewish World of Elvis Presley. She'll shed light on this little known side of the revolutionary rock and roll icon and help listeners understand how Elvis's personality and his musical gifts were shaped in part by his Jewish world. Chartok is Professor Emerita of Education and a full-time artist and writer, having previously taught on all levels for 45 years. Her earlier work includes four books and several scholarly articles on topics related to education, American history, and Jewish history, among them an anthology of the Holocaust. Hi, Roselle. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure, and I look forward to our discussion. Well, before we delve into the main topic of your research, I want to say that your book is a revelation, surely, for readers who were not alive when Elvis was the king and have only experienced him through his music and performance footage on TV or on other platforms. In your book, you talk about how Elvis was by no means a superficial person. What insights can you give us about Elvis, both as a contemplative man and as a performer whose gifts were seemingly boundless. Well, let's start with the first, the second one first, because he was a genius. I don't think I ever recognized that when I was growing up. Um, I, I bought his Heartbreak Hotel record when I was 13, and I thought he was sexy. Uh, but this idea of being a brilliant musician, being a, really able to um, compose and put together songs by himself, he, he had a vision of what he wanted in a song. So while he didn't write the music, he made the music his own. He was a musical genius, of that there's no question. And in terms of his, um, his your first, the first part of your question was about his, the other side that we don't see of Elvis Presley. This was a man who was very contemplative. I don't know if you, if we, if you recall the cover of the book, but, but it shows uh, uh, Elvis with his um, hand under his chin in a very pensive look. And that was really a part of Elvis that nobody knew about. Certainly, I didn't know about it until I did the research. What I found out was that from very early on, this was a polite, lovely young man. He just was brought up in the church. He was brought up in First Assembly of God. He was polite. Everybody whose words I read about him said, this was a fine young man. This was a good young man. He called me sir. Uh, in fact, uh, Rabbi Fruchter 
uh, his wife, Jeanette, said he called my husband Sir Rabbi. This was, he thanked people. He was appreciative of everything. And, and what was really behind all of this, I think, was the trauma that he experienced as a child. Uh, a lot of people don't know about that either. And, and that is that for, for his whole life, he dealt with two, two issues. One was the fact that his, when he was born, he was a twin and his twin died at birth. Jesse uh, was haunted him all his life. I mean, I don't know a lot about survivor's guilt because I haven't been in that situation, but I, I've read a lot about it. And I think Elvis was traumatized by the fact that his brother died at birth and he lived with the eternal question of why me? Why did I survive? Does that mean I have a higher purpose in this world? Uh, and, and the other one was his question, which was throughout his adult life, which was why me, Elvis Presley? Why am I able to go uh, in front of a crowd and, and people go crazy? Why? What is it about? He didn't understand, I don't think he understood just how much of a genius he was. In fact, I know he didn't. I don't think he had that confidence. Again, from his poverty roots, his roots as an uneducated boy, uh, and people were, could be cruel. He was made fun of uh, when he got into Hume's High School. They moved from Tupelo to, to Memphis. And he was wearing clothes that, you know, maybe sharecroppers kids wore. Uh, that changed quickly, but he was the, the uh, object of ridicule in many cases. He was never made to feel very important. And then he began to sing and he saw that people responded to him in that way. And he, he finally, you know, became aware that he had this talent. But th this, is a, this is a young man who was contemplative from early on. And I should add one other anecdote, if, if we could call it that. Uh, the other trauma he experienced as a child that I think affected all of these questioning, the questioning that he had, uh, was the fact that when he was barely three years old, his father, Vernon, I don't have a lot to say nice about Vernon, but uh, Vernon was um, forged a check and he was arrested. And according to what I read, he spent six months waiting for his trial for that forgery and then eight months in prison. This, this left uh, Gladys, his mother, uh, Elvis's mother, and Elvis together in a very close situation. And in a way, he became protective of her as a child of three, if you can imagine. And she, of course, bonded with him in a way. And he loved his mother more than anyone on this earth. So... I think all of this led to his questioning and um, maybe insecurities. But what I think is beautiful is that eventually, and I know that you haven't asked me about Larry Geller, but what eventually happened was he, he, he was able to find a guru, his hairdresser, to help him figure this all out. We'll get to, uh, to Larry Geller a little bit later. Um, but the, the next question, uh, since uh, you say you really, really weren't a fan, you bought the record, but you really weren't a fan, where did the idea to create a cohesive narrative about Elvis's Jewish world come from? And, and talk to us about your journey and how an article in the Memphis newspaper, The Commercial Appeal, first caught your attention. Okay, remember what you asked, because I might forget the second part of that. The first part I have in my head, which you just said, how did I get to this topic? Uh, I think that people who read, read the book and hear me talk are most charmed by, by how I arrived at this topic. It, it was not what one would expect. Um, I, I am a um, collector of vintage clothing. I love 40s dresses. I'm wearing one right now. And they are just, they don't make clothing like that anymore for women. They, they, 
They just don't. And I, so I'm passionate about that. And so one night I'm lying in bed and many of us, when we're not able to sleep, we think about a lot of things that, you know, have, don't make sense. <laughs> so I was thinking one night in bed about uh, vintage clothing and how, oh, Elvis. And I don't know why he popped into my head. I saw him uh, in my mind's eye wearing a plaid jacket on, on the Ed Sullivan show. And I said, yeah, he was, he was a cool dresser. He wore a lot of those vintage uh, jackets and pants. Maybe they weren't vintage then, but they are now They're from the 50s. And I loved the way he dressed. He had real style aside from his genius as a musician. He really knew how to dress. And, and so I said, gee, I, I wonder where his, who, who designed those clothes? Where he, who was his tailor? Now, again, when you're half asleep, your things just happen in your head that don't make sense. So, so I took my iPhone from my side of the bed and I, I Googled, I said, Elvis Presley's tailor. And what came up was the Lansky brothers. And pop, I said, oh my gosh, the Lansky, that's a Jewish name. Uh, he never, he didn't know any Jews. You know, I mean, what I knew of Elvis was what everybody else knew was he was, he was a big singer, rock and roll singer. And he came from poverty and all that, but I didn't know that he knew any Jews because, hey, just didn't make sense. Jews, Elvis, Elvis Jews, no, not possible. Um, also, I didn't think he had a brain at that point in my, you know, of my life. I didn't know how brilliant he was until I did the research. So up pops the Lansky brothers and I say, hmm, I wonder who they are. He had Jewish tailors, which is not uncommon, of course. So then I, I Googled the Lansky brothers. That, Dan, was the beginning because what I read about the relationship between particularly Bernard Lansky and Elvis Presley was beyond just Taylor customer. It was a friendship that had a warmth beyond all and also lasted from the day that he first met, encountered Elvis, which is a story in itself, until the day he died. In fact, Elvis was buried in a Lansky brothers suit and Lansky brothers sold him his first quote, decent clothing. And so Bernard Lansky uh, and Elvis Presley were friends. And I said to myself, lying in that bed <laughs> uh, that night, I said, oh my goodness, he, I wonder if he had other Jewish friends. <laughs> and that was the beginning. Uh, the onion was beginning to peel. And I discovered so much about, again, you know, the reference to his best friends within his inner circle, half of them were Jews. He lived uh, in, in, an, in an apartment below a rabbi and they became intimate friends and I could go on. The point is that, oh, and then, and then of course the ultimate peel of the onion, which is that Elvis himself had Jewish roots. So it all started with vintage clothing. Oh, and his grandmother's name, his grandmother. I then started to read a little bit about him and I read that his great grandmother on his mother's side, no, on his father's side, sorry, the Presley side, her name was Rosella. And that did it. <laughs> I knew I had a copy. That must have been. Well, there was the connection right there. Now, the, the other part of that question was how an article in the Memphis newspaper, The Commercial Appeal, first caught your attention. You know, I was almost done writing that book back in 2018. It was just about written. I had started in 2015, the research and, and so on. So, so, you know, it was almost ready and I was, and I was preparing it. And I saw online uh, this article. I'm trying to remember how I got to see it. I think it just popped up or something, or maybe I had, you know, this idea, you know, this thing of Google alerts kind of thing. But anyway, I came across this article uh, in the commercial appeal, which said that, he, that his mother's gravestone was now on display at 
at Graceland. And I knew the history of that gravestone, which I'll, uh, which I'll share here. The fact is that, that her, his mother died in 1958. In 1964, he went to the cemetery to see her gravestone. He brought two of his Jewish friends, Marty Lacker and um, Larry Geller, and they're looking at the gravestone together. And, and Elvis says to his friends, you know, I think I'm going, I, want to, I want to put a Jewish star, star of David on my mother's gravestone. Marty said, that's fine, I'll take care of it. And he did. And, and that's the most awesome thing because that gravestone actually is something people might've read about years ago. It was like the first amazing thing that would connect Elvis to any kind of uh, Judaic roots, but nobody made much of it. He, you know, the idea is that as, as many people might know in the assembly of God, all they talked about was Jews, you know, Ezekiel and Moses and Abraham, these were the, the, and the prophets. So the fact that, you know, he liked a Jewish star in his mother's grave, well, that's fine. But apparently he had told Marty and he had told Larry that at one point as a, as a young man, his mother, Gladys, had sat him down and said, Elvis, I want you to know that we have Jewish blood, but you shouldn't talk to anybody about that, including Vernon, his father, because people don't like Jews. Now, that testimony came from at least two of his friends about his mother sitting him down and telling him that. So that could be the first connection of his being aware that he had Jewish roots. And uh, although he may not have known what those roots were, which happened, I could talk about that as well, but it goes back to a Jewish great-great-grandmother from Lithuania who came to the South and, um, and was a, quote, a full-blooded Jew, according to a descendant of hers who was uh, interviewed by a woman uh, in, um, in Memphis who was doing a book on him called Elvis and Gladys. So Elvis is, is at the graveyard. He, he wants to have a Star of David put on his grave. And that gravestone uh, was there until 1977 in Fern Hill Cemetery in Memphis. In 1977, what happened was Elvis died. He was buried next to his mother and his father was concerned about grave robbing. I, apparently there'd been evidence of grave robbing. So Vernon Presley said, I want both graves, Gladys's, my wife's and Elvis, my son, I want them taken out away and moved to Graceland. What showed up at Graceland was not the star of David Gravestone. What showed up was they made these large bronze plaques, which uh, if you go to Graceland, you'll see them. And there's one for each major member of the family. No one knew what became of the one uh, with the star on it. And no one even asked about it, apparently. But the thought was Vernon probably got rid of it. That's 1977, last time anyone ever saw that gravestone. 2018, fast forward. What happens is Angie Marchese, who is the archivist at Graceland, she's, uh, according, this, again, this is according to the article, she's wandering around in this um, large warehouse with something like a million or two million artifacts related to Elvis are located. And she comes upon this gravestone, which has some cracks in it and is not in perfect shape. And it's the gravestone that has the Star of David on one side and the cross on the other, Gladys's gravestone. She decides, because it happens to be the 60th anniversary of, of uh, Gladys's death, uh, she decides she's going to have that gravestone restored and placed in the garden, the meditation garden, where these grave, gravestones are. So, uh, you know, clear to her that she should do this. Um, well, why was that? Because EPE, 
Elvis Presley Enterprises, which is all things Elvis. They govern the whole thing. And obviously, and many people don't know that Priscilla hired many years ago, she hired a whole company uh, and George Soden to, to look oversee the whole thing and turn Graceland into a, a tourist site. So Priscilla gets the credit for hiring the right people to do that. And those people are known as EPE, Elvis Presley Enterprises. Elvis Presley Enterprises supports Arca uh, Angie Barcasey's decision to put the gravestone in a beautiful location. And I'm sitting there reading this article and I had actually written in my first chapter, the whole first chapter was on Jewish roots of Elvis Presley. I was very skeptical. I never said, yes, he's Jewish or yes, he has the Jew. It was always if, if, yes. So I read this article. I said, no more ifs. I rewrote the first chapter. I said, no, he had Jewish roots. Not only did I hear about Elaine or read Elaine Dundee's book about you know, Elvis's Jewish roots, but I have now Elvis Presley Enterprises putting a, a gravestone with a Jewish star, which testifies to the fact that not only did he have Jewish roots, but he was proud of them. And his, his friends said he was proud of it. George Klein, one of his very closest Jewish friends, uh, said in his memoir, not only was Elvis aware of his Jewish roots, he was proud of those Jewish roots. So. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned George Klein, and I wanna, wanna go back to um, the issue of, of Elvis's poverty uh, and the way he was treated at Hume's High School. Um, many in the Jewish community, those who he became close to in Memphis, um, in contrast to others who, who denigrated him at, at that early age, really uh, kind of reached out to him. Uh, they were very welcoming. And George Klein, uh, who is uh, believed to be the first real good friend uh, that he had, Klein was a very popular guy uh, at Humes High School. Uh, he um, later went on to become a, a disc jockey and then full-time as part of uh, Elvis's uh, Memphis Mafia. So tell us a, a bit about that community in, in Memphis. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, uh, the dentist, the Lightman family at the Malco Theater, uh, Harry Levitch, the jeweler. There was a community of folks who really were very close. Tell us about that. Well, there's a lot of interesting aspects of this issue of, of these Jewish merchants and, and Elvis's relationship to them. I think, I think it's, there's two aspects to it. One is, you know, I grew up in a town uh, in upstate New York, Hudson, New York, which at the time I was growing up in the 50s was a lot like Memphis in one respect, or there may be other respects, but in one respect, and that is that we were a minority, a very tiny Jewish minority, but every one of the stores on the main street owned by Jews, you know, the, 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 pharma, the pharmacy, the, the, the clothing stores, the hardware, so it's just, you know, Jews were, you know, and it's not a stereotype. They were factually and historically merchants. They're starting out as peddlers as they did in Memphis and then creating their own stores. So it's, it's not unusual that Elvis would encounter these, these um, business people because he loved to go into the shops and so on. But what was unusual is the way that they treated him. Uh, you mentioned so many of them, and, and Lansky and, and Levitch. Um, they treated him with respect when he was not being treated with respect, you know, across the board in the high school and so on. And he appreciated that. I mean, when, when Bernard Lansky invited him in, uh, <clears throat> Bernard saw this, this gangly, pimple-faced, greasy-haired kid in, wearing his usher's uniform because Elvis was an usher at the movie uh, house around the corner. 
he came and he stared in the windows of Lansky Brothers store. And he just wanted to wear all the cool clothes that all the, the black dudes on Beale Street wore, but he couldn't afford it. That was out of the question, but he could come and stare at it. And what did Bernard Lansky do? He came out and he invited uh, you know, Elvis into the store and treated him with respect. And he ended up eventually being the first one to offer Elvis the opportunity to buy on credit, which was a big deal. Uh, but he treated him with respect. The guy Lansky, uh, Bernard's brother said, the one thing he remembered about Elvis was, was not the way he looked. That didn't matter that he, had, that he had holes in his shoes and things like that. That didn't matter. What mattered was that he, Guy said he was a polite young man. He was a very nice young man. I will never forget how lovely a person he was. This is the kind of thing that, that these Jewish merchants saw in Elvis and, and he respected them as well. Um, Harry Levitch, Elvis knew as a very poor kid in high school that Harry Levitch was the person behind, or he found out later, but he, but he knew that Harry Levitch was the one who set up a fund for shoes for poor boys uh, and girls in, in Humes High School in Memphis. And Elvis is likely one of the recipients of, of some of those shoes. And certainly the people at uh, Red West and others who were friends of his were recipients because they were some of them were very poor. And he, he was so appreciative of that kind of love that these, that this, Harry Levitch had for, for kids and for, for doing good in the community. So I think, I think what happened was that, that these merchants treated him with respect. He never forgot that. I mean, M.A. Lightman, when, and it, that's a wonderful story. And, and um, I, I can't think, I can't remember his nephew's or his grandson's name who wrote the book about what happened. I got, I got some information about how Elvis was treated with respect by the Lightmans, and he was invited once he started making it. He was invited for private showings of movies in M.A. Lightman's uh, private movie house, but in his home, actually. M.A. Lightman, by the way, had a string of movie theaters. They were the biggest and best movie houses in, in Memphis. And in fact, Elvis, uh, when he really became famous, got, got the opportunity to rent out any of those uh, or one particular movie house, and he would show movies to his friends in the middle of the night. Uh, the Lightman, uh, M.A. Lightman was very, very kind to him, and he appreciated it. There were so many others, um, and Lester Hoffman was his dentist. Lester, I love the story about Lester and, and, and um, Elvis. When Elvis would go there, they would schmooze. I mean, it was a matter of, Elvis liked to schmooze. They would talk cars, of all things. Uh, I mean, who, who thinks of, you know, talking, Elvis talking to his Jewish dentist about cars? But they loved him. Lester, was in, Lester and his wife were invited to the biggest events at, at, um, at Graceland when, when, when Elvis's daughter was born and other um, wonderful occasions. Elvis never forgot every one of these people. And one of the stories that I like the best is Reuben Sherry. Um, Reuben, that's a heck of a name and I've always loved Reuben's name. Reuben Sherry owned a record shop on Beale Street. It's not there anymore in its place is a large statue of Elvis now. But at the time, the, on Beale Street, Reuben Sherry's um, record shop was where Elvis not only shopped for records, but it's the store that sold his first record. Reuben was this character. If you saw his face and his, the outfits that he wore, I mean, he was a real character. And, and, but loved Elvis and fooled around with them. He, he told Elvis stories all the time. I mean, it was a place that Johnny Cash shopped for records too. They all came to this record shop. And the thing about the record shop that I loved so much was this was a time of segregation. This was a time 
when there was incredible prejudice, not just against, against Jews, but obviously against African-Americans in the South. So what, what Reuben Cherry stood for was integration. His shop became the place that blacks and whites would come together in a natural way, in a way of friendship. And uh, I, I forget the author who said, this was, this was the first uh, real sign of integration, uh, a place where everybody could feel safe talking to one another without any kind of prejudice. So Reuben Cherry was a real sort of uh, symbol of brotherhood. He, his his, his uh, record shop was a, a gathering place for all kinds of wonderful people who loved music. And Elvis was one of those people. And, you know, the, the sad thing is that, um, you know, Elvis, you know, Reuben was forgotten. You know, I have to thank Hal Lansky. Because Hal, when I was down there in Memphis, and Hal was Lansky, uh, the son of, of Bernard Lansky, um, who continues to run beautiful stores, uh, Hal said to me, um, you know, have you, have you heard of uh, Reuben Cherry? I said, no, I never heard of him. He said, well, you know, you ought to look, look him up. And look him up, I did. I came to really love this guy, uh, an eccentric guy completely, but, but a loving and good man. So I could go on and on about, the, about these these uh, business people, these store owners, they had a special connection with Elvis. They respected him for who he was and not for what he looked like. And of course, uh, many of them said he was like our son. We were so sad when he went into the drugs. We were so sad when he gained the weight. We were so sad. We loved him like a son. They all said that. Well, I was fortunate many years ago on a visit to Memphis uh, to have met some of these folks. George Klein in particular, I think that was extremely important for Elvis, the fact that a very popular uh, young man in high school chose to have Elvis be his friend. Uh, that must have been extremely important. And of course, that relationship went on for many years. And what you say about, uh, I did meet Bernard Lansky, and, and I could see um, immediately how that uh, chemistry uh, would have uh, developed, uh, because uh, Bernard himself also was a kind of a larger than life figure uh, and a very friendly, very friendly sort uh, as, is, as is Hal. Uh, we can't leave out Rabbi Alfred Fruchter and his wife, Jeanette, because they were also extremely important in this story. Elvis and the family lived downstairs at 462 Alabama Avenue in Memphis. Tell us about, uh, a bit about the Fruchters and uh, what kind of relationship that was. That story used to bring tears to my eyes. Uh, it doesn't because I've talked about it so much and I, and I have uh, gotten, you know, sort of happily relating the story. But when I first started talking uh, to audiences about, about the Fructors, I, I would always get teary and people would, you know, somebody mentioned to me, did you really tear up when you were talking? I said, yeah, because it's such a heartwarming story. Where do I start? Let me just say, first of all, that Judith Fructor, Judith Fructor Minkoff, uh, who was one of his five children, Rabbi Fruchter's five children, has become a friend. She, she and I talk from time to time. And when she said she read the book and she read the, I gave Rabbi Fruchter a whole chapter. Uh, when she read the story uh, in, in that chapter, she thanked me and said, I did it perfectly and I didn't miss anything and thank you. And that was the greatest compliment to get when someone who knows the whole story that she's heard from her parents and so on, said that to me, it was very touching and I was most appreciative. I also got to know um, less directly Chaim or Harold Fruchter, one of the sons, um, who is a, a wonderful person. And I've been slightly in touch with some of the other uh, children of Rabbi Fruchter, but the, the story is 
that uh, both of them, uh, the rabbi lived upstairs with his family and uh, the Presley's lived downstairs in an area called the Pinch. The Pinch was the, uh, sort of like the Lower East Side of New York, which is where a lot of immigrants came from different nationalities and also just poor people would gather there. It was a place they could afford to live. And many of them eventually made enough money and they moved out. And that was the case with the Presley's. And that was uh, the case when, when the Fructors, uh, uh, Alfred Fructor got another pulpit out in California. But at the time that they were living in the same building, Rabbi and Jeanette were such good friends, particularly of Gladys and Elvis. And Elvis was a, a you know, mere 17 years old at the time. And he befriended them and became their, well, we call it Shabbos helper now, but the Shabbos goy is the more familiar uh, term. He would be there for the fructors to turn their lights on, to do any kind of uh, things that, that Orthodox Jews like the fructors wouldn't do on, on the Sabbath. And they loved him and they treated him as one of their own. They would invite him to Sabbath dinners. He would sit at their table and eat their foods. And he came to love all of Jeanette's Food. She would make, particularly he talked about the simis. He loved, Jeanette would talk about how he loved simis and how pretty soon he started having his, um, his favorite sandwich was banana and peanut butter and, uh, and he would have it on challah, which is for those who don't know, <laughs> you know, most people know challah is, is uh, Jewish bread that's eaten on a Sabbath, braided bread. He loved that. He also would um, enjoy the music. He would hear the windows would be open in the summer and he would listen to the beautiful music that the rabbi would be playing of cantorial uh, arias and so on. And he came to love the sounds of music. That comes out later, I won't go into it, but he, he came to love the sound of kol nidre and other songs and, and other music, uh, pieces of music that he heard. He also uh, loved uh, you know, to, to um, he, he would carry a yarmulke in his pocket because he had so much respect Rabbi Fruchter, that if he was in his presence, he would want to put the yarmulke on and he would want to, you know, show respect. The other examples, which are so beautiful and, and very heartwarming is, uh, is when um, Jeanette had her first child and she brought uh, uh, him home from the hospital. Elvis saw it through the window and he came running out and said, Mrs. Fruchter, please let me carry your firstborn into the house and took him upstairs. And uh, there's a beautiful picture in the book uh, of, of Elvis and, uh, and his cousin. And in between the two are the two of the Fruchter children, uh, gorgeous little children. They were very, very uh, close with them. Uh, so Elvis, Elvis was for Jeanette like a son, she said many times. She talked about how she loved him, how, again, uh, how concerned she was when, when things you know, got, got bad for him. And, and she wished she could have done something and she was horrified, but she loved him. She would listen to him singing outside on the, on the bench with his guitar. They, they also, uh, it, interestingly, they had not a lot of money, but they had a phonograph and they had a telephone, something that the Presleys did not have. So when Elvis did his first record, That's All Right, which started the, the, uh, the path to stardom, um, he had to listen to it on the Fructor's phonograph. <clears throat> he had to go upstairs. And when phone calls came in congratulating Elvis, he had to get those calls on the Fructor's telephone. So there, there was this incredible relationship, almost like family. And that's and at the end of whenever Jeanette was, was interviewed, she would talk about Elvis as, as a son almost. And she said, this was a, this was a mensch. She said, this was a mensch. And, and she knew the side of Elvis that so few people know, which is his intelligence, 
his generosity, his warmth, his, his caring, his awareness of others and their needs. For example, he, uh, he was given as a poor child um, free membership to the Jewish Community Center in Memphis. <clears throat> and he never forgot that. So when it came to him being an adult, he gave thousands upon thousands of dollars to the Jewish Community Center. It's where he learned to play racquetball, by the way. And that's another story, because in the book, I talk about a Jewish racquetball player who had a relationship with Elvis. Um, I mean, racquetball, I... I think there's a, I think there's a check that he, that he had uh, written uh, to the community center, which is framed, I think, at Graceland. Yes. Uh, one, of his, one of his contributions. <laughs> like $150,000. Uh, yes, that's right. In those days, that was $150,000. That was a lot of money. Yeah, it, it's remarkable. So, so Jeanette, uh, I remember one conversation that, that was um, in, in an interview with Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette is talking to this reporter or something, and he, she said, you know, I would, <clears throat> I would have tea with, with um, Gladys, and we would talk about Elvis. And Gladys said to me, um, you know, uh, Jeanette, I'm worried about Elvis. You know, he, he doesn't do that well in school and I, I don't know what's gonna become of him. I mean, I wanted him to become a doctor. And, and Jeanette said, she said to Gladys, listen, Gladys, don't worry. Someday he'll make you happy. Just wait and see, understatement. So it, it was a beautiful relationship. And, I'm, and what was lovely is that Judith, said that um, no sooner had Jeanette and, and the rabbi had died at that point uh, later on, and the stories that they had told their children are now, you know, is the second that Elvis died, by the way, reporters immediately came to, to find out from this rabbi that he had known more about Elvis. And then those stories are now carried on by the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the rabbi and his wife, which is, which is rather beautiful. Well, we talked about the Memphis Mafia. Uh, it was kind of an expanded group at a certain point, and it included uh, Elvis's hairdresser, Larry Geller, uh, who introduced uh, Elvis to um, Eastern uh, mysticism, religions. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, God. That, that is one of the best stories. And I, 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 in, the, in the book, I talk about the relationship, the sort of details of the relationships that, that Elvis had with each of the Jewish members of his, of his Memphis Mafia. So I go into great detail about the relationship that Larry Geller had with Elvis. I don't know where to start and where to stop, but I'll just say how it started, because I think it's kind of an interesting uh, and meaningful way that it started. Elvis's hair, he was out in Hollywood, he was making a movie and his hairdresser went on to some other livelihood or somewhere else and he needed a hairdresser. So Larry Geller was a hairdresser for the stars. He worked uh, under a, a very famous hairdresser. And uh, so he got a call and he was sent over to, to uh, do Elvis's hair. Elvis had never met him before and, and frankly didn't you know, know anything about him. So, so there's Larry, uh, sitting there with Elvis and he's about to start working on Elvis's hair, which by the way, people might not know that Elvis needed a lot of work done on his hair because it wasn't naturally black. A lot of people think, oh, he had dark hair and he had thick hair. No, he had sandy brown hair and it was very thin, but you can do a lot with dye and you can do a lot with hairspray. But anyway, so, so a lot of work had to be done on his hair no matter what, and especially when he's making a movie. So Larry came and um, they, they, got, they said hello and, and Elvis is looking at him and, he, and he's this, they start a conversation. And, and apparently this is the story that I hear from Larry, who Larry, by the way, 
I want to praise him publicly because he has been there with me every step of the way that the five years that I was doing the book, he would answer every question. I found his phone number somewhere online somehow. And I, I called him and we became, we began this friendship where I would send him a question and he would answer it immediately within seconds. And uh, to this day, he, he still is, is so kind and, and in touch um, with me. And I'm very grateful to him for all that he shared. And he shared a lot. He himself wrote three books about, about Elvis and his relationship with him. At any rate, uh, he basically wanted to know, Elvis wanted to know who this guy was. You know, what, what, what are, who are you, Larry? Uh, I mean, what is your thing? Um, and Larry basically sort of contemplated, should I tell him who I really am? Because I'm going to sound kind of corny. Because Larry was a vegan, a yoga, uh, he did yoga. He, he was into spirituality. And so he apparently Larry said, I'm going to tell him who I am. And he was honest about it. Uh, and that really turned Elvis on. He said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking, he was, he was looking, again, I told you earlier, answers to the questions of why did I survive when my twin died? Why am I Elvis Presley? So Larry was there as someone who might be able to help him answer some of those questions. And when, when Larry saw that he was interested in, in these kinds of issues, he started to give him books on spirituality, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, the Kabbalah, uh, Jewish mysticism, and Elvis ate up those books. He couldn't get enough of them. And again, that's a side that most people have. Elvis reading philosophy? I mean, it's just incongruous. No, it's not. He would write into the margins of these books. He would, he would ask more questions. He would talk to Larry and, and talk about what he learned. Uh, one of the things he learned, as a matter of fact, was um, I think that there's a section of, of the Kabbalah, which is uh, Jewish, uh, which is Gematria, I think it's called. And it's the analysis of symbols and numbers and the meaningful relationship between uh, those letters and, and what you can learn about your character and about, your, uh, about um, human personality. And one of the things he learned in analyzing all these Hebrew symbols and so on was the meaning of his name. Uh, El, this, El is God in Hebrew. This is power, the power of God. He was fascinated by, by the meaning of Elvis in Hebrew and according to the Kabbalah. And he, he delved into all aspects. He started wearing the high at his concerts. There are photographs of Elvis wearing a gold, a, a, a diamond studded high uh, because he learned it meant life. And Larry talked to him about uh, what it meant to him and, and that really these symbols can, can change things. And you know, it's true. You know, one of the things that I, that I think a lot of people are aware of that, that religion can help people get over certain humps in terms of, 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 their, of their pain. And whether or not you believe in it or, or not, um, religion has been shown by doctors to be helpful to people when they're in stress. So, so Elvis just took all of these Judaic symbols and all of the Judaic philosophy and, and embraced it. And it may be in part because he had heard from his mother that they had Jewish roots, but also because he understood that these were meaningful uh, lessons for him. And so he, he really appreciated Larry, but I'll tell you the sad part was that Colonel Parker, who was, I can't use certain words in our interview, but Colonel Parker wasn't nice. And he was uh, uh, all about himself and how much money he could make from Elvis, among other things. Although he did some good things, obviously, for Elvis and putting him out there. But, but, but the Colonel uh, didn't like Larry at all. He said, this man is taking my boy away from his music about what, uh, you know, taking him away from what's important. In other words, making money. Uh, and he made life hell for Larry, as did the other guys. The other guys would start calling uh, Larry, uh, you know, uh, 
names and, and, and nicknames that were just very derogatory because I think they were also threatened by Larry and how much attention Elvis was paying to, the, to these books and to, and, to, um, and to Larry himself. So Larry told me that when he saw the writing on the wall, he said, you know, do I wait around till I'm fired or do I leave? So he left actually for a few years. He came back later to be part of the Memphis Mafia. But, um, but he left and, and worked at a, at a bookstore for, for some years because he didn't want to, to be, you know, in the middle of that abuse. And apparently they, they uh, got rid of his book, all of those books um, that Larry had given him. But years later, when, they, when Larry got back together with Elvis, he did find some of his books still there and that, and that Elvis had salvaged some of them and, and was still reading them. So Larry was a true soulmate, um, a, a guru. And uh, there's a woman named Alana Nash, who is an author on the subject of Elvis Presley. She's written quite extensively and uh, is, has contributed a lot on Elvis. And she, in her, one of her books, she said, in her, in her opinion, Larry Geller was the purest and best friend that Elvis had. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I spoke to Larry some years ago. Um, and he told me that leads into our next question, really don't have too much time left. And I want to get to his movie career, Elvis's movie career. Uh, but he said that, at, you know, towards the end already, Elvis was um, looking really to do more serious roles. Uh, he was he was ready for for more serious roles in, in motion pictures. He made 31 feature films. Uh, several of them were directed and, and produced uh, by Jews. For example, George Sidney, Norman Taurog, um, I think, directed nine of the 31 films, films that we all remember, and we see them constantly on, on TCM and, and other, uh, other stations. How did Elvis feel about uh, the people that he worked with in Hollywood, those uh, Jews that he encountered? Um, and we might also add here too, I mean, there were Jews when he performed in Las Vegas, there were Jews who opened for him when he was uh, in concert. Um, uh, comedians like uh, Jackie Kahane and Sammy Shore. Uh, so, What's your, what's your assessment of those relationships? You know, Elvis, as I said, and, I, and I, I really think it bears repeating, was very smart, very, very smart. And he knew who the really good directors were. He knew what it meant to be in a really good film. King Creole was, um, was, was the, uh, the ultimate. Apparently, it, it, gets, it has the reputation of being the best film he was in. Jailhouse Rock, a, a close second. But in King Creole, he was, um, he was directed by, you know, the name is actually escaping me and it's easy to find. He was, he was directed by um, a Jewish, uh, an immigrant, one of, and who had done uh, Casablanca. The name just Michael Curtiz. Curtiz, thank you. And he said he knew now what it meant to be directed by, a, you know, a genius. And he wanted Curtiz to do the next film, to, to direct his next film. But Curtiz refused to do it for whatever reason. Um, the point being that he had, um, I have a whole chapter on his directors and producers and people he worked with in, in television, like Milton Berle and, and uh, not Ed Sullivan, but in the case, because he wasn't Jewish, but he had a nice relationship with Milton. But anyway, in, in terms of his acting, he wanted Hal Wallace to give him, he worked a lot with Hal Wallace. Hal Wallace was like um, Torig, Norman Torig, and they had the most Hal Wallace, I think, produced nine of his films, which is the most of any other producers, and Tor directed more of his films than any other director. And he liked, he liked them both, but Hal was not 
giving him the kind of films that he wanted. He, he knew what, what good acting was and he knew, and he had the capability of being a good actor according to everybody I, I read about. They said he had the potential of being a great actor. And even the women he worked with, they all said he, he could have been a great actor. But Hal Wallace, like the Colonel, knew where the, knew where the money was, knew that putting out these musicals where the music was simply, in a, you know, I mean, the film rather was just a, a way of getting the music out as opposed to the film being the body of what's important. They knew that that's where the money was because they were making money making those kinds of films. And they didn't give him the kind of training and respect that he deserved and he would have thrived on. And he wasn't enough of a fighter. You know, that's the other side of Elvis. He didn't fight for himself in that milieu. He could have probably stood up and said, no, I'm going to make this happen. But he went along with it. It was, it was probably easier and he was making you know, money. So it's a sad story. I think, it's, I think many researchers on Elvis say that one of the saddest aspects of the story, besides the fact that he <clears throat> became addicted to his medicines and that he, uh, you know, and he gained weight and all of that kind of thing, the, the other saddest part of his career was that he never got to prove himself as a great actor, which I believe he could have done because there were not the people there in place to say, yes, we're going to do this for you. And it might be in part the prejudice against his background. He was a Pentecostal, uneducated kid, and some people could not see past that into his genius. Well, I think that there are two stories here. Uh, that one is uh, the Jewish story, the Jewish connections, which is just fascinating. We keep learning more, and your book has shed so much light on this. You know, I just want to mention Harry Levitch again because um, you know Harry was a, a big um, uh, active member of B'nai B'rith. Uh, he was actually the president of the Neighbors District Seven at that time, which went through the Mid South, um, and we would see him a lot at, at conventions. And he was the guy who who brought the wedding ring to Las Vegas for the wedding to Priscilla. It's a great story. Uh, so there's the Jewish story. Uh, and then there's the story that, that, that you've been talking about throughout, uh, which is uh, how decent, uh, how colorblind this man was in terms of his relationships. Uh, very humble. You said you know, he wasn't a fighter. Maybe that wasn't in his nature. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you can be remembered as a good guy, and I think that's how uh, you've remembered him and how many see those who knew him and those who admired him, many see it the same way. So you've really told two stories here uh, and uh, it's uh, really been great to have you. Thank you very much. And I enjoyed every minute of it. I just wish it'd go on a little longer, but because the stories are endless, but thank you so much for, for having me. Well, the book is The Jewish World of Elvis Presley by Roselle Chartok and is available wherever you purchase books. Roselle, again, we appreciate your joining us and exploring a lesser known side of the king of rock and roll. Elvis's legacy is more complete because of your work. If you're looking for more of our diverse content, visit our website, benebrith.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Thanks to author, writer, and artist Roselle Chartok for joining me today. And as always, thank you for listening in. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to the B'nai podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you again soon.